0: Hello everyone, welcome to the home Bible study. Welcome back, Uh, new people, welcome. We're studying in the letter to the Hebrews. We have made it to chapter two. Now, last time we looked at the beginning of death and sin um, and the story behind mankind being introduced to sin by Satan. Now, sin is not the fault of Satan. But instead, it's the means by which uh, he was able to get man under the influence of his influence, and thereby dooming man to death, both the spiritual death, which is means just being separated from God spiritually, and also physical death, the eternal separation from God. That's what happens after we. Experience physical death; those who are unsaved because of sin are eternally separated from God. It's a terrible, terrible fate. And the good news is that we have a Savior, and that is the story of the Bible. All sixty-six books speak of the Savior, and um, you know the Gospel is not just the good news, but it is the the entire Bible is the gospel so we're going to take up we left off uh, hebrews uh, chapter 2 we left off in verse 13 we're going to pick up hebrews 2 14 and here we're going to continue this story uh, this story of redemption we saw last time how that satan was behind the doom of mankind and the motivation and uh, the I wills of Satan, like what? It, why is he so hateful towards man and towards God? And we saw some of that that's working in the background. Now we're going to see what God has done to rectify the problem that was initiated in the garden when Adam disobeyed God, when Adam and Eve both disobeyed God, but uh, the the burden of responsibility is on Adam, just as it is today. The burden of responsibility is always on the husband. And um, so the burden of responsibility was upon Adam. And so um, if we just left off with the, what Satan accomplished, it'd be a very sad story. It'd be a very, very sad story. But we have good news. And a lot of times you have to see the darkness before the light can shine bright. And so we see how this all started in darkness, but hopefully uh, we're going to see the light that has been um, interposed upon this very dark story. Um, So Satan knew from his past estate in heaven, as we established in the last lesson, he knew as the covering cherub, that was his role, his position. He knew that if man sinned, that the righteous judgment of God would be death. There was nothing else that could stop that. That is the righteous, the righteousness and the holiness of God demands that sin be dealt with. And he knew this. And so I believe that's why he sought to capture man and place man under sin uh, because he wanted that to be the end of man. There was pride. There was jealousy. Uh, All of these things led to Lucifer becoming Satan. And now as Satan, he is full of all the evil uh, intent. Uh, He has a supreme intelligence, but marred by sin. And so... Uh, That makes intelligent men uh, to be petty. And the same is true for this fallen angel. That sin has affected and corrupted his entire being to the point to where he goes from being uh, Lucifer to Satan. And so his goal was to immediately... Uh, doom man under sin, just like he was doomed under sin. He wanted mankind to be doomed under sin, and and by in doing that, he had a motive of bringing man into his realm of control, and we'll see that. Now, I don't think Satan could imagine a scenario that would be able to save mankind from this fate. I don't, I don't, I feel like in his mind, once man sinned they were doomed. Um, uh, God had not made any means of deliverance for the fallen angels, which is what he is. So why should Satan believe that man would be any different, right? Because the righteousness of God demands that sin be dealt with and the punishment for sin was death. So he had every uh, reason to believe that All he had to do was trap man under sin and then his goal would be achieved. Um, So mankind was, we saw, lower than the angels. So if this is the fate of the angels that sinned, it should be, um, logically you would think that that would be the fate of man uh, if man sinned. So you can see how the rationale or the thinking behind that, but... We're gonna see uh we're gonna go back to Genesis so that we can kind of get an idea of what occurred and um the the rationale where I see this rationale being played out. So in Genesis 315, and one of these days uh, I'd like to study all the 315s. There's some very famous three fifteens in the Bible on John three fifteen or three sixteen, but there's some very famous ones in the Bible, and um I want to study that, but um here in Genesis three fifteen we see uh God revealing his plan of redemption. Now, prior to this, I don't believe that Satan had any idea that there was a plan of redemption. You know, it's from his perspective, he had accomplished his goal and uh it was an airtight case against mankind, right? Uh, He had walked amongst the stones um, in heaven that spoke of his knowledge of God's justice, judgment, and righteousness. And so he was very, I believe, um, content with the fact that he had accomplished his goal. But in Genesis chapter 3, I think it was revealed to him and to man that uh, he was not successful um, at the time Genesis 3:15 at the time that it was given to Adam and Eve it really didn't seem like very much you know but in light of Hebrews we can see the grandeur and the glory of this verse uh, when we when we look at it in light of what we're going to be said in Hebrews you can see that this this verse has a significance beyond uh, what could have been perceived by completely by Adam and Eve at the time. So I'm going to read it. And it says in Genesis three, chapter 15, just Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Now he was talking to the serpent in verse 14. He was talking to the serpent specifically. Now, um, now he's, Uh, saying I will put enmity between thee the serpent and the woman specifically why well the woman was deceived she wasn't afraid of the serpent he beguiled her so it makes sense I'm gonna put this hatred or um, this hatred between you between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed so on the surface it looks like he's saying i'm gonna make women hate snakes and i'm gonna make snakes children to hate uh women's children but we know that there's more to it than that because at this point he's not speaking so much to the serpent but to the one that indwelt the serpent so it says that she's going to have a seed. That's a revelation because before now, uh, Adam and Eve, they were created adults. But here we see that God has a plan for uh, the population of the earth through the woman. She's going to have a seed. That's the way that people are going to come into the world subsequent to Adam and Eve. And it says that the Satan is going to have a seed. So there is a plan and purpose uh, in the plan and purpose of God that Satan will have an offspring. And it says that uh, an output enmity enmity or hatred between thee and the woman and between uh, your offspring and her offspring. It says that it shall bruise thy head meaning her offspring shall bruise thy head. The word for bruise means to crush, will crush thy head. And thou, your seed, Satan, shall bruise his heel. So you can see that the to have your heel crushed is not a fatal blow, but to have your head crushed is. So what we have here um, is... Uh, in verse 14, he's talking about the serpent, right? The literal snake. Uh, in verse 15, he's dealing with everybody else who's involved with this sin coming into world, right? He's dealing with man. He's going to deal with the woman, the man and woman, their seed, right? This is how they're going to bring forth people from now on. It's going to be in pain and childbirth. You know, the woman is going to experience pain and suffering. But this seed is not just uh, Cain and Abel. But this seed looks far into eternity uh, beyond right now, far into time, you know, far into time from right from where it was given. And that seed we know be, from the study of scripture and the revelation, the point of revelation we're in now, that seed was ultimately David. And then David's uh, offspring or his line through him came the lord jesus and we studied that earlier in hebrews where jesus said i'm going to bring one from you that's going to be an eternal ruler right and here we see the first mention of that eternal ruler given to adam and eve in the form of this seed so that eternal ruler we know now to be the lord jesus christ so then satan has a seed who could this seed be We know that angels don't marry you know angels can't have babies they can't have children Uh, they're spiritual beings they don't reproduce jesus established that very clearly so who is this seed well we know through the study of scripture that this seed is the antichrist that there is going to come a man who will be born uh, who will be the ruler of the world during the time of the great tribulation he's the one who will be the 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 rider of the first horse the white horse he will be the false christ and um all the other rulers um when rome is rebuilt all the other rulers will give their power to this one and for the first three and a half years we know he's going to appear to be the savior of israel He's going to appear to be the one that's going to bring them um, to prominence and they're going to buy into it, you know, lock, stock and barrel. They're all going to start going back to Israel and he's going to establish that nation and they're going to be a world power and he's going to bring peace by means of war. So for the first three and a half years, they're going to believe that's their messiah right? Because that's what they believe the scriptures to, to, uh, that's how they interpret them that he's going to come with power and he's going to crush all the other, um, nations under his feet. And they're going to think that this antichrist is the Messiah. He's going to be a false Christ. And we know that from other scriptures that Satan is going to indwell him and give him power, um, Beyond just a human being. So he's going to set up this false religious system. um, And he is going to be the uh, center of that world religious system. So we know all of this. So we know who the seed of Satan is. It's going to be this Antichrist. So it says that his seed, Satan's seed, is going to crush her seeds heel. Like, like, you know, it's like a snake striking at the heel of a, a man. It's not a fatal wound. But it says that her seed, her seed, this this in the line of David, this one is going to crush his head. So it's a fatal blow. So in Hebrews, I, I, say, I say all this because it sets up what we're going to be learning in Hebrews uh, chapter 2. We have to keep in mind that... No scriptures of a private interpretation. It all has to fit together. Uh, this is one story. This is one gospel. This is one truth. Jesus is one. He's one God. So there's, there. you have to, you cannot take something out of context without it fitting into the big picture. And I wanna make sure we understand that the things that I am sharing with you fit into the big picture that this is a very broad scope and that little verse about uh, that was told to adam and eve they understood that they didn't understand the grandeur or the scope of it but they understood the fact that one was going to come from her from eve that was going to redeem them from this state of sin that they found themselves in Like they understood the consequence and the effect of sin better than we do because they lived in a state prior to the effects of sin, right? They understood a world, right? That was not affected by sin, that the curse of sin had not um, affected. So they lived in that environment for how long? I don't know, but they lived in it long enough to know the difference. So the tragedy the tragedy of sin coming into the world was obvious to them. They felt it, right? They felt it in a way that we don't, because we're born into this world. This is the only world we've ever known. We're born into it, and um, man has created um, kind of a environment of sin is okay. In fact, you know, we even embraced it. Uh, you know, you compare. Uh, The times that, you know, back when Hebrews was written or even go further back to Genesis and um, when the law was given and and it established, you know, God was very much established in the world. People knew who God was. They chose not to worship him. Um, They made a conscious choice to say, I don't want to have anything to do with him, but they knew for sure that he exists and the fact that we could be uh call ourselves a modern world, a modern times um age and not acknowledge the existence of God, that shows you the effects of sin right there. That is the effect of sin on mankind. That we could uh breathe uh the air that he's given us um that we could research and know so much about the functioning of the body and the universe and the different laws of nature and how they are in perfect balance with one another um, in such a way that if, if the earth was to be moved a centimeter, less than a centimeter uh, out of its uh, place closer to the sun or further away, all life on earth would die. I mean, that's that's God, that's intelligence beyond us that has created this universe and placed it in the balance. But sin causes us to question that. And we have live in a world to where people don't believe that even God exists. So, so that's, that's the world we're in now. And let's, let's, let's look and see what God has done to deliver us from this fate, right? That's, that's, uh, I say all of that to set up what's being said and that we're going to study here because we have to understand the, the grandeur of what's being told to us or what's being revealed here in Hebrews chapter two. So Hebrews chapter two, verse 14, we're going to see how the Lord Jesus accomplished his salvation. Um, how he has redeemed us from this fate. Um in verse 14 it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, um he also uh himself, he also himself likewise took part the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now that's a that's a pretty simple statement. But behind that statement is some very powerful. <laughs> and huge uh, doctrinal truths that we need to take a look at. So first of all, it says, we're talking about Jesus. Now, we're talking about how he accomplished bringing us many sons uh, into glory to himself. How did he accomplish this? Well, it says, for as much or because, um, for as much then, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. So first of all, who is he talking to? Or who is he talking about? He's talking about the children. He's not talking about everyone in the entire world. He's not talking about everybody who will ever be born. This is a specific group of people that he mentioned in verse 13, the children, behold, I and the children who God hath given me. So he's talking about these children. Uh, and he says, these children are partakers of flesh and blood, right? So what does that mean to be partakers of flesh and blood? It just means that we, um, are made of flesh and blood. That's what we're made of. Um, that's how we exist in this, uh, plane is with flesh and blood. That's our bodies are, um, are weak and frail and they damage easily. And the older we get, the, um, the more we're aware of our own frailties. So, um, that's what he's talking about. The, the, the children, those who are of flesh and blood. And it says he also himself likewise took part of the same. Now that's a very simple statement that because we're made of flesh and blood, he also became flesh and blood. Now there's a doctrine here that's called the hypostatic union. Uh, It is where God took uh, upon flesh. He was completely God and completely man at the same time. So he kept some of his godly glory and power from himself so that he could experience what it's like to be a man. So he was born of a woman just like we are. He was an infant. He wasn't like uh, Adam and Eve who were created fully adults. He had to be born uh, of a woman, a virgin, and he experienced life from infancy uh, all the way up to being a grown man. So for those who believe that a fetus is not a person and they think it's okay to um, abort uh, a fetus because it's not a real person, um, God begs to differ because he came here through a woman and He, in every phase of his development, he was God and he was man fully. So that means the same is true for us, that we are From the point of conception, that's life. That is a person. That person has a soul, an eternal soul, and they have that eternal soul forever. You know, uh, our bodies are just, um, they encase who we are. Who we really are is our soul or the essence of who we are is our soul. This body is just how we interact with one another and how we interact with the universe that we live in. But, If you want to know someone, their physical appearance, that's not the person. It's the person inside. It's their soul. So that's how Jesus came into the world. We are flesh and blood, so he also became flesh and blood. Now, again, I say it's a simple statement, but obviously there's a lot more meaning meaning behind it that we need to grasp. See, the glory of God, his holiness, his grandeur, all of his power, um, all of his being before he became a man, uh, is beyond what we can really understand. We can only glean some of the knowledge of what that's like from what's revealed in scripture, but the things that all the scriptures that relate to the pre-incarnate Christ speak of power that is so awesome that if a man were to witness it, he would die immediately. Um, When Moses asked God, hey, I'd like to see you, he said, you can't look on me. If you saw me, you would die. You can't see me as I am in the state that you're in. You know, your body cannot handle that. Whenever um, he appeared to Isaiah um, or Ezekiel, um, the prophets, when he appeared to them, they said they felt... On their face. There was no life in their body because the glory and the power of God is so overwhelming that we could not stand before him in the way that we are. So this is who God is, but this is also what he left behind. When he took upon flesh, he couldn't walk around and interact with people With that kind of power, he he wouldn't be effective. There there would be no connection. We could not communicate with him or interact with him. He couldn't be born of a woman and be born with that kind of power. So he veiled or kept a lot of that power veiled or hidden behind flesh so that he could interact with us. That is the, the goal of. Um, the lord jesus in redeeming us because he desires to bring us to him so this is who he was before he took upon flesh and it's also who he is and was after he took on flesh it's just that it's veiled so that's this hypostatic union where he's very god and he's very man so he basically the the, the easiest way i can explain it is that imagine the God in all of his glory get in a suit, a a body suit, you know, of a man, unzipping it, putting it on, zipping it up and veiling himself and all of his glory in that body. That's, that's a very um, crude and um, way to say it, but that's, that's the easiest way that I can uh, relate it. And understand it but and that's what he did so you know we can relate to the flesh part of god of jesus uh, these people these hebrews they knew him as jesus they grew up with him they would talk to him they interacted with him they could relate to jesus as you know the one that they went to school with or they knew his brother or cousin and uh, uh they, they could relate to that aspect, but what needed to what they needed to see is that his superiority, his deity and that's what's being established in these verses that his superiority to angels and uh, what all that he left and to come and redeem us. and that took him taken upon flesh. So we can relate to the frailty of flesh, the struggles of living in this life. What we can't really understand fully is what it meant to leave the exaltation uh, as God of heaven and in living in eternity and coming to step into time into a world full of sinners and to still be a holy God. That's hard for us to to really uh, contemplate. Paul says that he humbled himself. That's how he describes it, that he humbled himself. Um, Jesus, the God of creation, became like his creation with the goal of redeeming his creation from the penalty of sin. That's what's being said here. So why? Why would he do this? Why would he take upon flesh? What's the end goal? Uh, Well, the Bible says it was for the joy set before him, right? That he endured the cross. Um, That through death, he might destroy him. All right. So it says that he took upon flesh. um, And he also likewise took part of the same. uh, That through death, he might destroy him. Well, who is him? That he's destroying well the him is satan the one who uh, trapped man in under sin and uh, doomed man to a fate of being separated from god forever so the first purpose of him taking on flesh was to destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. So you have to understand that Satan was cast out and he had the power of death. He had that and he used that power. He leveraged sin in man so that that power would be something that he could use to manipulate man. So Satan has the power, or he had past tense the power of death, that was his. With Satan comes death, right? That's he's the the minister of death, um, and by trapping man under sin, he then captured man under that power. So Jesus took upon flesh, became like a man, so that he could redeem man from this the, from this evil one, uh, from the power of death. That's what he said. He, that he might destroy him. So this is that crushing of the head that we saw earlier. Um, this is the, the first part of that crushing that he took upon flesh and blood. Now, I don't believe that Satan could have ever imagined that the God of this universe would do something like that, that he would take upon flesh. I mean, remember um, man was created lower than the angels. So that means that God, God humbled himself, not just to the angelic level, but below that, you know, those who are even below angels, mankind, there's no way that um, Satan could have known that that would happen. So this, this must've been a, um, pretty, um, pretty difficult thing to, uh, realize and to see. Uh, and it just goes to speak of the place that God has given man. That's why we saw earlier, you know, what is man that God considers him like, what is man that God would do such a thing that he would leave the glory of heaven and eternity and take upon flesh in order to redeem him? So the first part of that is to destroy the devil. So when in the, in his ministry here on earth to reveal the father, he was accomplishing this uh, benefit of destroying the one who uh, had this power of death uh, that that's leveraged against us, that was leveraged against mankind. So, the benefit was to the children. Uh, this is not to everyone, but to those who are the children of God. Those are the ones who benefit from this this redemption who are delivered from this death, from the power of this death. In verse 15, and here's another benefit. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So this is the picture of the unsaved. The unsaved are in bondage. And the bondage is centered around fear. Um, The one thing that we all have in common is self-preservation. Everybody fights to stay alive. And at the core of that fight is a fear of death. Nobody wants to die. Even people who ultimately commit suicide Usually there's several attempts because there's a fear associated with death, right? And Satan knows this and he leverages that fear, that deep down fear to manipulate mankind. And you say, well, how does he do that? Well, I'll give you some very simple examples. The philosophy of this world is satanic. And, um, the philosophy that says that leaves God out and you don't have to be, uh, super smart to see that the world system is a system that leaves God out. In fact, the system that the world system that we have right now doesn't acknowledge God does not want to acknowledge God. In fact, there is a concerted effort to take God completely out of the vernacular of the world, um, the world's communication and understanding. What Man has created their own version of God. But the God of the Bible, the God that revealed himself to man, nobody wants to have anything to do with him other than the children of God, those whom he's revealed himself to and he has redeemed well, yeah, we are all on board with glorifying and exalting him, uh, but the world, no. And you can see that in their philosophies. Um, One of the sayings that you hear is get it while you can, right? There's a lot of people that have that mentality. I'm going to get as much out of this life as I can while I can get it. Well, that's based in fear. That's a philosophy based in fear because you're uh, the, the, because you know death is before you, and uh, the only consultation you have to yourself is to enjoy as much of life as you can while you can. That is satanic. That is somebody who knows that they're doomed. Another one. You can't take it with you, so you gotta get it all. You know, while you're here. And uh, the one that I I love. That's the most satanic but the most popular is uh, you got to be your own captain of your fate, right? So all of that is false. All of those things are false. They're based in fear and they're very worldly um, philosophies that have, that leave God out. They do not take into account the, of man's responsibility to worship, to praise, to glorify and acknowledge God in all that we do and say. So These are all very familiar, familiar phrases that are accepted by the world as, you know, good life mottos. But the truth is that they all fail once you die. Once you die and you face a holy God, all of those uh, sayings or philosophies, they fail. So we're talking about a holy God that is so strict, so holy, so righteous that he would not even give his own son, Jesus Christ, a pass when it came to sin. Uh, Jesus died on the cross because of sin. Uh, No one killed him. uh, No one took his life. He died because the Father placed the sins of all the people, all the children whom he would redeem that were predestined to be the sons of God, All of those, their sin was placed upon him and that's why he died. That's why he died. He didn't die because of the cross. He didn't die because someone killed him. He gave up the ghost and it was as a result of sin being placed upon him. That's why he was separated from God. That's why he says, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was separated from the father in his body, in his manhood. He was separated and it caused caused him to cry out. It was a horrible experience. But that's why he died, because sin was placed upon him. And that's why we die, because of sin, right? Death is the only result of sin. And sin is in the world. That's why we have disease. That's why people die. That's why we don't live forever is because the corruption of sin is eating away at us. Uh, You look in Genesis, uh, people live like Methuselah and Adam, they live 900, 1000 years. That's because the effects of sin are degenerative over time. And now we're so far away from that time that we can't live past 80, <laughs> you know, if people live to be a hundred now, it's a big deal, you know, and it's all because of sin. So, um, that's, that's the purpose of, um, the Lord Jesus taking upon a body and, uh, God's holy judgment cannot be a Uh, alleviated he even his own son uh, was made to die because sin was placed upon him that's the righteous judgment of God and that's the righteous judgment on everyone that's why we need a savior because that gloom and doom is hanging over our heads and Satan uses that to manipulate the unsaved uh, that's why it says they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Because they're busy trying to get it while they can, you know. So um that's that's what we have to be delivered from. That is the the death that awaits every person. So how do we what is the hope of man then, if that's the case? Well, Jesus has rectified that problem and that he took upon flesh flesh and blood he partook in flesh because that's what we are so he became like us like man so that he could redeem man so the father made Jesus a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death Hebrews 2 9 we saw that earlier that the father made him lower than the angels for the suffering of death, that is what he's done to uh, redeem us and to accomplish this salvation. Uh, that's uh, and as is stated in um, in uh, two ten. It says, "For it became him." For whom, this is in Hebrews two ten. For it became him for whom are all things by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain or the leader of their salvation perfect through suffering so jesus didn't get a, a by or a pass when it comes to sin so no one will that's the message that if god holds himself to that standard that there's no way that you man you woman who um uh, rejects the salvation and rejects God, there's no hope for you. There's no way. Uh, there's no argument that you could bring before God at the great white throne judgment when He Himself has held himself to this standard. How can you go before Him and say, Well, you should give me an exception because you know I'm the captain of my own fate? Well, the captain that you need is the one that's mentioned here the in bringing many sons of glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is the captain. That's who we need to, to be our, our guide and our example. He's the one. And if the Father held him to this standard, then no one has a chance apart from him of being delivered from the wrath that the Father has awaiting uh, all sin. All those who sin um, must suffer this destruction, this wrath, even uh, Satan himself. So so Jesus had to be born of a woman, right? Now we see what necessitated him being born of a virgin uh, because he took upon flesh, He became the perfect redeemer because he became the perfect man. Uh, He was man and God simultaneously. And through this uh, perfect being the perfect man, he was able to redeem man from sin. Those of us who are not perfect, who are born in sin. He was born sinless. He lived a life of sinless perfection and thereby making him the perfect sacrifice on behalf of other men who aren't perfect. You know, this is what it means when it says that he was a partaker of flesh uh, so that he could accomplish these things that it was it, his success necessitated our salvation necessitated that he take upon flesh. So Jesus had to be born of a woman and all things to be found as a man so that he could redeem mankind. That's the word of God. Now, now we have Jesus, the author and finisher, the author and finisher of our faith. That's what we have. He is the way he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life." That's what all that means. When he says, I'm the author and finisher of faith, it means that he is the example. He took up our place. There was the first Adam that plunged us into sin. He is the last Adam, not the second Adam, but the last Adam. That's the finality of the success of what he did. So he became the last Adam and those who are in the last Adam have redemption, right? Because he is the way, right? He is the author and the finisher of our faith. So Jesus will for eternity be covered in flesh. This is, this is one of the most amazing truths to me is that he didn't just take on flesh while he was here. And then when he returned to heaven, he returned to his former state. He returned to his former glory, his former power. All of that is fully manifested, but it's now manifested. Um, in his body because he now has a body he will forever be covered in flesh now it's an eternal body which Paul goes into great detail that says that you know it's not it's not going to be like the body we have now um, there's a theory that it's a flesh and bone but there's no blood so uh, it's an eternal body it's made of a different uh, material. It's an eternal type material, but it is a body just like ours in, in, in all other senses of having a body. So, um, this is how we see him, how we recognize him before he was in approachable light and he manifested himself in ways that were like, like he's told, um, Moses, if you looked upon me, you would die. But now he has taken upon this body so that we can have fellowship with him, so that we can interact with him. And that's the hope of all believers is to look upon his face, to be able to uh, have that kind of face-to-face intimate uh, fellowship with him. That is the hope of all believers, or it should be, that's what makes heaven, heaven, is because Jesus is there and we're going to be able to interact with him without sin being in the way. So he does have this body uh, eternally. Um, it says that uh, the, the Bible reveals that he will bear the scars of the cross for eternity. You know, he will always have the marks of the holes in his wrists. And in his feet, and where he wore that um, crown of thorns, those marks, those scars are going to be with him forever. And um, in Zechariah 3:16, it says, um, "It looks forward in time to to after the Lord comes back the second time, and He's in the millennial kingdom, and I imagine that He's being asked this by a child, you know." I can imagine him being in the millennial kingdom, interacting with the people in the millennial kingdom. Um, um, He'll be the Emmanuel, God among us. And they're going to ask him a question. They're going to say, what are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. So he's going to have these wounds. They're going to be visible. And I don't know about you, but just the thought of people being able to interact with the Lord Jesus that way, being able to speak to him directly, to see him, um, that brings great joy to my heart. In contrast to the world we live in now that wants to nothing to do with him, uh, there's a time coming. There's a fulfillment of the promises to the nation Israel where they will have their 1,000 years of peace and they'll be able to interact with the Lord Jesus this way. And they're going to be made a beacon to the entire world. Uh, people all over the world are going to uh, ask for uh, Jewish people to please take them to Jerusalem where he is. Um, they will minister to the world that way and he'll be among them. Among them. And that is just wonderful, wonderful to, um, to imagine, to know that that is ahead of us and ahead of them. Now we'll be in new Jerusalem, but I do believe that we will interact on some level with the nation Israel during this 1000 year reign as well. And there's scripture to support that, but I won't go down a rabbit trail. the The point is that he bears these marks in his body forever. In revelations five, six says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Well, that's the Lord Jesus. So, um, that this in revelation, it speaks of, you know, him in eternity and, and uh, in heaven. And John saw him and he said, uh, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. So he's going to bear these marks of the cross um, forever in his body. And, uh, so Jesus took upon flesh, uh, to redeem man, you know, the sons of Abraham. Um, that's what he says in verse 15. And not only will he, in verse 14, it says he's gonna, he destroy death and, and the devil in verse 15 and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime is subject to bondage. So, Once we're saved, once the Lord saves us, we have no fear of death. You know, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of what's going to happen when I die because I know, I know that I'm going to immediately be before him. I'll immediately be in heaven with him. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that that's going to happen. So it takes the fear of death away. You know, Um, I just not afraid to die. In fact, I look forward to being with him i anxiously look forward to being able to be in heaven and to spend eternity with him. So um, Jesus took upon flesh, like I said, to redeem man, you know, even the sons of Abraham. In verse 16, it says, for verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So uh psalm 46 psalm 40 verse 6 it says mine ears has thou opened so we're gonna look when we get further in the hebrews more into this psalm but the significance of it but this term right here i want to share with you because it's such a blessing to think about what's being said here he says my ear my ears has thou opened so what what this is referring to is in the law, uh, if a slave has come up to the end of their service, because no slaves could be perpetual slaves in Israel, it was against the law. So they had a certain amount of time that they had to serve, and then they were allowed to go away. They were allowed to go free. So when, when their service ended, you know, they're free to go um, God never intended for perpetual servitude that way. But, um, so once it's your time, you leave. Now, the only exception to that was if a man, let's say he married another slave, right? Who was also a slave to this master, a servant and her time, you know, she still had 20 years left on her time, whereas his time had come up. So if this happened, um, and he was in love with this woman. Um, there was an, he had an, he had this option where he did not have to leave her. So what he would do is he would get his ear pierced. The, the master had an owl and they would take him on the doorpost and they would pierce his ear. Um, and by putting that hole in his ear, it marked him as a slave to that, um, Master forever, but he did this will this was something he did willingly because he wanted to be with this woman. So that's what this um uh, Psalm forty is talking about. My ears hast thou opened, because Jesus did the same thing for us, for those who are his children. He he um took upon flesh and the marks of his eternal servitude on behalf of love for us are shown in his body. That's what the, that's why those marks are always there. That's why the, the signs of the cross are in his body. It's because it's a witness and a testimony to the universe of his love for us that he took upon this, this body uh, and this body was pierced for us so that we might be redeemed. And it was done out of love. Uh, this is what Jesus did for his children. He was pierced for our transgressions. And for the love of the church, his bride, he's going to bear these eternal marks of love. So we should never, ever doubt the love of Jesus. So if, you're, if you are his child, if you are saved, then no matter what happens, no matter what kind of suffering comes in your life, what challenges, never doubt his love for you because he bears the marks of his love in his body uh, forever. And that's for you. He did that for each individual person that the father gave him. He calls them his children uh, or his brethren. So, Know that no matter what suffering that might come to you, it's filtered through that kind of love. And you're going to be able to see that the marks of that love forever, they're going to be ever before us as we see him and we look upon him. We're constantly going to be reminded of what he did to redeem us. And to me, that's just uh, a great and amazing blessing. So... Verse 16, it says, for he, for verily, he took not on him the nature of angels. So I don't want to skip over that. So we talked about that. What he did was to, and one of the benefits of him taking upon flesh was that he destroyed death and Satan uh, in one swoop. You know, he destroyed them both. And here we see the finality of that uh, destruction, because in verse 16, he says, for for a truth, right, this verily, or truthfully or obviously, he took not on him the nature of angels. So what that means is, there is no hope for these fallen angels. Their destruction is set. Because there's no redemption for them. It's just that simple. There is no hope. Because he did not take on the nature of angels. right? He took on the nature of the seed of Abraham. And thank the Lord Jesus, praise his name, that he took upon the seed of Abraham. The nature of those like us. Uh, to redeem us because in doing that he has secured for us an eternal place in glory of rejoicing Uh, just like he has bound up and secured a place of destruction for all of those angels that followed after satan and um what a What a damning verse that paints a picture of man who was made a little lower than the angels. But now through the Lord Jesus has been exalted in him because he took upon flesh. Because he took upon flesh. So now all the Hebrew believers that are reading this, uh, the believers that of every age, even, you know, up to where we are now know for a fact that, you know, this is good news. That's the the gospel that God in Christ has defeated the enemy and made us those who he has uh, predestined unto salvation. He has made us children. Uh, We are part of that eternal congregation that Jesus will present unto the father in heaven, holy and blameless and in love. Those like Abraham, Those who are weak, full of questions, those who do nothing more than just believe God. Abraham's faith was accounted to him as righteousness. He believed God. God accounted to him as righteousness. That's the same faith that we've been given today. In verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. So here we see that Jesus was made like unto us. And the beautiful part of that is that he calls us brethren. Why does he call us brethren? Because we in turn are going to be made like him, right? He came into a world full of sin to redeem sinners. And now those sinners have been redeemed and our redemption affords us the blessing, the great, great blessing of spending our eternity in righteousness, in heaven, in eternity with him, in holiness, in, in his presence, we now can interact with him. We can have fellowship with the Father through the Lord Jesus. We've been made children and we've been made brethren, that he might be It says a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. So the goal was to redeem flesh and blood and also to become uh, a merciful and faithful high priest um, in all things pertaining to God. Because ultimately, Jesus answers to himself and to his own holiness. And he had to satisfy those holy prerequisites uh, in himself. And he did that in our redemption. And it says that he became a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation. Okay, that's a big word. That just means that he has dealt with the enmity, the sin that was separated us from God. He has reconciled us, right? He has reconciled our account. We were in debt to God because of sin. And he has canceled that debt out, right? So he has accomplished what Adam and Eve were looking forward to. He's reconciled us. He's placed us back in good favor with God. And it says to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Because sin is what ultimately separates us from God, it has to be dealt with. So uh, it's very clear here that um, Jesus has accomplished something that has never been done before. What could not be done by the blood of you know sheep and 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 cows, He has done by taking upon a body. And in his blood, he has accomplished this redemption. Um, it says, God came to us. To us, a son is given. He performed the work. Uh, he has accomplished this. It's done. He only asked us to believe. That's the only commandment that he's given us. Just believe on the one that I have sent, even the Lord Jesus. And that faith, that belief is accounted to us as righteousness now next time we're going to look in more into this high priestly ministry of christ because it mentions that he's you know a merciful and faithful high priest we're going to look into that a bit more but for now let's just meditate on what he's done to redeem us he's not left us in our sin he's not entrusted our salvation to angels or to anyone else uh he has myriads of angels serving him constantly. You know, some who their only job is to proclaim his holiness in heaven repeatedly, but he has not entrusted our salvation to any of them. Um, he has accomplished this himself. He said that uh, during his triumphal inf- entry, if the people didn't praise him, that the rocks would cry out. That's a, That's what the kind of worship that he demands from his creation. Uh, but this is the God that came to redeem us himself. He did not trust this to anyone else. Um, he took upon our sins and he redeemed us. And through his death, burial, and subsequent resurrection, we have salvation. You know, salvation is of the Lord. Today is the day to believe Uh, he's given us this good news he's revealed this to man Uh, his heel was definitely bruised on the cross but satan's head will be crushed and so we have this salvation Um, we have this in the lord jesus and if you're hearing my voice then i make an appeal to you an impassioned appeal to believe on the lord jesus let's close father thank you for your son thank you for your grace thank you for all that you've done for us there's no way that we can truly comprehend fully uh, what it meant for you to come into this world and to um, live amongst us but you did that because of the joy set before you because you you want and look forward to us being able to uh, be delivered from this sin and to be able to enjoy you fully, to be able to enjoy interacting with you. And you bear in your body still, even on the throne, you bear in your body the marks of your love for us. And Father, we thank you and we praise you for your son, for for giving him to us and making us to be his children and to make us to be able to be called his brethren we pray father that uh, you would bless all those who um, study your word and that you would glorify yourself in it it's in jesus name we pray amen